questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes Reverend Ruth Everhart to the podcast. She's an author, speaker, and Presbyterian pastor, and her writing explores the hidden ways religious belief shapes how we think about life, especially the lives of women. Now, it can also be said that she writes about difficult topics, and what you're going to hear today is right in line with what she says on her website, I write books for people who dare to believe that Jesus values the lives of women. Now, in this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael and Ruth will discuss her most recent book, The Me Too Reckoning. As you'll probably recall, the Me Too movement revealed sexual abuse and assault in just about every aspect of society, including the church. But victims have been routinely ignored by fellow Christians who deny their accounts and fail to bring accountability to the perpetrators. Ruth herself is a survivor of sexual abuse and discloses stories of how she and others have experienced assault in church settings, highlighting the damage done to individuals, families, and communities. She also offers hope to survivors as she declares that God is present with the violated and stands in solidarity with victims. This is a powerful discussion and I encourage you to download and share freely. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, Ruth Everhart, welcome to the podcast for Restoring the Soul. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. You've written a couple of books, and the one that we're going to be talking about today is The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And I just want to start by saying thank you. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you. There have not been enough Christian voices and people of faith addressing this issue. And also note that I was personally touched in the dedication that you dedicated the book to all survivors of sexual abuse and the faith communities who care for you. And part of my story, I have kind of a, a tripartite, unique perspective, and it's always a little bit um, not awkward, but precarious as I talk with women. Um, I was over a period of about 12 years sexually abused as a boy. One of those was from a medical provider when I was 16 Aww. years old. And I'm also a psychotherapist that works with sexually broken couples and sex addicted men. And 26 years ago, I was exposed while in ministry as a sexual addict and compulsive. And I've experienced great healing around that. So I I try to be an advocate for women and to put words to the, the power differential and the reality of abuse, but this is a profound work. It's courageous and prophetic, and it's though you're trained uh, academically at a seminary, this was no academic work for you. So talk a little bit about the context in which why you wrote this book and decided to jump into the deep end of an incredibly charged, painful reality. Well, thanks so much for those kind words about the book. And I do feel passionate about this subject, as I'm sure you do. And, and so many of us who've experienced abuse or worked with abusers feel. And I wrote this book simply because I felt called to do so. I had previously written a spiritual memoir about my experience of being uh, raped at gunpoint when I was 20 years old and how that affected my life. And that came out in 2016. And in the kind of aftermath of that, I began to realize how important it was to talk about the subject that very few people of faith were. And uh, I felt called to continue that work. I can't say that I wanted to. I didn't really choose the topic. I say the topic chose me. And since I believe that our lives are a gift and that God calls us to do certain things with our life, I just felt that I couldn't walk away from that. And what I saw in uh, the Me Too movement was an opportunity for the church to be a leader 
in this area of responding to the issue of sexual abuse. And I saw that the church by and large was not being a leader. And so that was the reason that I felt that I needed to step up and uh, dive into the deep end, as you say. I saw that the church was starting to lose credibility in culture. I think that's a, a larger subject, and I think that's been ongoing. But I saw that, especially in this particular area, um, the church was not having the kind of powerful prophetic voice it needed to have. Well, and because um, no one would argue against the reality of um, sexual exploitation and assault in the secular world at large, the church could be leading the way in that. And if the church were grace, forgiveness, and of course, your book unpacks way beyond that because those can be used as ways of minimizing the problem, but where there's actually an opportunity for true redemption, restoration, and bringing men and women to being complete equals in society, if we're not leading the way in that, then that seems like it's just a shame. I completely agree. And yet I see that the church is often very hesitant to be a leader um, in that way. You know, I see it as a justice issue. And uh, that's why I'm passionate about it. You grew up in a Christian Reformed, very conservative environment. And I think you did your undergrad at Calvin, of which that's I'm right. familiar, have friends there that have taught. And uh, my sister used to live right next to it. So you've kind of evolved over the years. You called yourself in the book a Christian progressive. And you say, I'm not a liberal feminist. I'm a radical feminist. So not theologically speaking, but what, what led to that shift? Uh, and then what's the difference between a radical feminist and a liberal feminist in your mind? Well, um, thanks for picking up on that. You know that you're the first person that's asked me about that line, and I did think I would be asked about it. I think that I was moving towards a less conservative point of view by the time I got to Calvin as an undergrad. Um, I came from a family that was more progressive than the surrounding milieu, which was not something I even realized until I got older, because you just think your family is normal, right? Um, and so it took me a while to realize, in a sense, how conservative my surroundings were, which may sound funny, but my mother, for instance, was incensed that women couldn't serve as elders in our church. And uh, it seemed obvious to me that she was right about that. And so by the time I got to Calvin and realized that that was still a live issue for some people, it just started to seem obvious to me that men and women were equal, at least in the ways they could respond to God's call in their life, and that the church ought to allow that to happen. And by um, when I draw in the book the difference between liberal and radical feminism, and it is just kind of a line in the book, but I did want readers to kind of be alerted that my sense of um, being a feminist is very deep, and it is actually based in my faith. It's not just a kind of a throwaway, trendy kind of a thing, but that I believe men and women are created in the image of God. And so um, we, as image bearers, we have full equality and mutuality under God. And that's not something that I see reflected a lot in the Christian world at large. thought you did a great job in the book of taking sociological information and what's happening in culture and your, your theological training and your own personal story. And that's such a, such a rare blend of those three. And it seemed very seamless where you would go from the sociological issue to a biblical story, and then you'd weave your own story into that. And I think that's part of the power of the book. But what struck me was I didn't find myself having to step back and say, oh, is this concept true? You know, is that a trend? Or, you know, are you some kind of way out there on the fringe theological person? But the stories themselves revealed uh, particularly from the Old Testament in contrast with how Jesus related to women, the stories themselves revealed the cultural power differential that's easy to look at the Old Testament and go, well, of course, but those power differentials and the patriarchy still exist today. They certainly do. So a lot of our listeners are in the more traditional camp, but uh, I hope they're not 
put off by this or go, wow, I didn't know I was one of those. But they're, they're people that are searching for something deeper and more substantial and perhaps less focused on moral violations and correct theology and more what, what is real and what really touches my soul and how can life be with God and for justice and love and mercy as opposed to just simply belief. Okay, having set that background, there may be listeners who hear the word patriarchy and they go, okay, I've just labeled Ruth Everhart, and I know what this book is about, and this is an axe to grind and an agenda, and you are very strong in the book, and you name names, and you talk about real situations, but there is not a hint of disdain for men or superiority of women. It, it's just a very kind and forthright book. So can you take the idea of patriarchy and pretend like you're talking to someone who may not get it or who may think that that's a, a confabulation? Well, I think that patriarchy is hard to see because it's the air we, we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It's really, to me, a simple idea that men, um, bottom line, are of more value than women are, and that it therefore makes sense that men make decisions that impact women's lives. That attitude is so deeply rooted, not only in our culture, but in ancient cultures, and therefore the world in which uh, the Bible takes place, and the world in which Jesus lived, that those attitudes have permeated so that the idea that that a man knows better than a woman, that a man should therefore be empowered to make decisions that affect a woman, I think that's what we mean by the word patriarchy, because patriarchy is about power. And sexual abuse is also about power. We too often, especially as Christians, kind of focus on that moral dimension that you touched on, that sexual abuse is about sexuality. That just seems obvious. And there's kind of this ooh factor, you know, that, oh, that's not seemly to talk about. But that's not all that it is. I mean, of course, sex, sexual abuse involves our sexuality, you know, but it, it at, at its heart, it's about the abuse of power. So it right, goes right to the heart of this subject to talk about power dynamics and that we talk about that in shorthand with a word like patriarchy. And, and again, from a Christian perspective, if we start to step back and examine this, um, if we look at the life of Jesus, if we look at the whole idea of Philippians 2 and the, the emptying of God and the, the very cross itself, is that mm -hmm. those in power are to give up power and that we we become powerful by giving up that power. And so at the very core of our faith is this profound truth that actually has not been there in so many ways because of this power structure. Absolutely. And we miss the, just kind of the mind blowing quality of Jesus life. If we don't understand that he also was in the middle of these same dynamics and so that the way that he related to women, the way he spoke with them and touched them and healed them was uh, at a level that was so shocking in that day. And it's, it's, it's helpful to kind of see Jesus through that lens of, of how he was pushing back against that. You um, shared earlier at the start of our conversation about a horrific assault that happened when you were in college and you, you talked about that very vulnerably in the book. But then in your first church assignment after seminary, you also experienced an assault. And you wrote that I had been trained for pleasantness, not the fury that now carried through me. And I just smiled when I read that, that sentence. So can you unpack that? What was the pleasantness and what was the fury? Well, I think they both are right at the heart of what it means to be a woman. Um, as a woman in a Christian world, I was trained to be a good girl. You know, that's my phrase for it, really, to be nice and to not cause waves and to uh, to be all the things that a good Christian uh, woman is supposed to be, you know, to bake cookies and to be uh, pleasant in her demeanor, to be modest, to not draw attention to herself. 
to modulate her voice, to make the world a slightly nicer place, slightly nicer smelling. And that's all of what it means to be pleasant. And I think that you could package that all in uh, this is what a woman is supposed to be. What happened to me in my senior year at Calvin College when I was raped at gunpoint by intruders into my home was uh, of that world being completely shattered because suddenly uh, it wasn't enough to inhabit the world in this way of simply being pleasant. I became really acquainted with, with fury, with having been physically assaulted. So that place in the world kind of got ripped away from me. And I didn't know what to do with all this anger. Nobody had ever trained me or told me that a woman could be this furious. And I spent years really figuring my way out of that. And it was really a faith struggle. That's the struggle that I really try to chronicle in my book, Ruined, the memoir. Uh, It took a decade for me to kind of come to terms with Jesus and with how God could allow this to happen. And, uh, but it's not like once you go through something like that, that you somehow, even after a decade can say, well, I'm done with that. I'm completely at peace now. And it was at about the end of that decade that I was launching into ministry. I was a young mother. I had two daughters, an infant and a toddler. And I was off to serve my first church as an associate pastor. And the senior pastor was a very well-established figure in our, not only our congregation, but in our denomination. His attitude towards me was one that did not allow me to be a full human being, to be my authentic self, to use my gifts in ministry. He became kind of inappropriately attached to me. And um, it culminated in him pushing the boundaries so far that he actually pushed against the physical boundaries of my self and my body and my office. He entered my office and accosted me physically. And what that did was completely reignite this sense of fury, like, oh, my God, literally, God, what? why do I have to deal with this again? How am I supposed to push back against this? I have no power And um, once again, a man has used his power against me. So I did go back into a space of anger. And I just want to kind of remind your listeners, no matter where they are, they may be angry themselves. They may be afraid of their anger. Uh, One of the things that um, I think is so important for women of faith is to come to terms with the fact that anger is part of the journey. And it's not just women either. I mean, you mentioned your own story, Michael, that to be acquainted with with fury is part of being human and of having um, to be abused in any, any way. And so this is not something that we have to just ignore. We have to, you know, there are, there are gifts in anger, there are gifts in fury. And so... Part of my goal in writing is to try to communicate that in a way that's authentic and honest and real and um, doesn't try to just make it all put into a pretty package because it's, it's a difficult process. Well, first of all, thank you again, even now for uh, describing your personal experience because it's, it doesn't go away uh, after time. Time doesn't heal all wounds and our bodies can still Uh, get activated and feel all kinds of things. With the fury, it strikes me that there's a double standard where men can be furious, but women can't. You know, we use figures of speech, like there's probably even country Western songs about the father with the shotgun on the porch while the first date arrives, you know, so it's okay for the husband to threaten killing the kid who's dating his daughter, but it would never be okay for the mother to do that. You spoke about how your husband wanted to take a a bat or something and kneecap uh, the perpetrator in your case, but that your own fury might label you as a bitch or somebody who is, you know, making too big of a deal out of this. Absolutely. There is a double standard. We see that culturally all the time playing itself out. And yet we need the fury of women. Um, And I just think of, again, the figure of speech. Oh, well, that person is being a mama bear. 
protecting their kids, you know, so a sense of I will destroy anything that stands in the way or does harm to the people that I love. But there's a really limited context. You've channeled your fury and maybe to borrow a word from Gretchen Carlson's book, Be Fierce, you've channeled a fierceness into your writing where there, I mean, there's just no other word, but it's like you start right out of the gate with saying, here's what this is about. Here's where we're going to go together. And you just don't relent. And then in the last chapter, let's, let's jump here and then we'll back up. You talk about lament and lament to me as a psychotherapist kind of feels like the release of fury and feeling what's underneath that fury. So can you talk about lament? That's right. Lament is a way to kind of pour out the fury uh, before God. It can be done individually. It can be done in a communal setting. But what it does is it kind of unlocks this grief underneath and this incredible sadness that um, that the world is this place that I that stirs such difficult emotions in me. And when will it end? I mean, I think the lament is how long, oh Lord, how long? And it's part of the process of moving out of the fury or of channeling the fury for some other purpose. Uh, Ruth, you are white and I am white. And yet through the book, you make a number of analogies to the uh, racial issues and the movement that's happening right now. Your book came out in, I think, January of 2020. So that preceded some of the more recent events with the murder of Mr. George Floyd and, and so many other black deaths at the hands of police officers. But you talked about uh, how the, the comparison between uh, white fragility and then male fragility. Can you talk about what male fragility is? Well, I, I like the comparison to white fragility because it's about someone who actually is in a position of power but because they're so accustomed to that power that any hint that perhaps that that power is something that they are abusing or something that they don't have fair claim to seems completely impossible. And so there is then this kind of a quick movement towards uh, vulnerability or kind of a put on vulnerability. Um, I think you said it this way in the book where the response of the the person in leadership at the church at your first church was I'm one of the good ones. You know, you've misunderstood. Right. And that's another comparison to kind of white fragility, which is when we want to sidestep the fact that we're part of a a race that uh, gives us certain advantages Um, to be male is to have certain advantages over women. Uh, To be white is to have certain advantages over people of color. But then when we're called upon to acknowledge those things, we, uh, we resist that knowledge because we don't want to face that fact that can be an ugly fact. And so we take refuge in the fact that, Oh, but we're one of the good ones. We're not part of this kind of large um, conglomerate of being white or being male We're somehow special. And so um, it's a refuge from facing an ugly truth. So just like uh, a white person might say, and I'm ashamed that I have said this in the past of, well, I have black friends and I have a minor in black history. And um, so I'm not a racist. And yet this morning, as I drove from my home to my uh, office, there was a, a young black man jogging through my neighborhood and I saw him and he wasn't one of the black men that I know that lives just a couple houses away. And I thought, why do I notice black runners when I normally don't pay attention to white runners? And there's something that I guess that would be called a microaggression or micro racism, or maybe it's just the way my brain works, but there's a sense in which I have daughters. And That's exactly the equivalent. I yeah. have a wife, I have daughters. Yes. And, and in your case at that same church, well, we've hired a woman pastor. So how could, how could I be anti-woman? And how could you misunderstand my words or my actions? That's right. Because all of these dynamics are much more subtle. I mean, kudos to you for even noticing what you're noticing, right? That's kind of meta. And that takes a real self-awareness to say, yeah, why am I noticing that there's a person of color taking up space in my neighborhood? That's interesting that I even noticed that. 
Um, and so I think what that calls us to do is to become really aware of our own thoughts and feelings and they can go by in a flash. And if we're resistant to noticing them, it's easy to pretend that they're not there. I think part of the wordplay around white fragility and male fragility, as you called it, is that the fragility is the inability to be vulnerable, uh, the inability to hear how I have impacted or hurt another and to hear the other person's actual expressing that, which again reminds me of the call of the cross, that it's in our vulnerability. Well, let me speak of Jesus. It was in his humiliation, if you will, that the heart of God was revealed. And therefore, if men, and I'm just speaking about this uh, from my own perspective, if men were to humble themselves and allow themselves to be vulnerable and to really hear women and to really see the data, to see that sexual assault, the um, systematic patriarchy and the power differential is used against women and that women do not experience themselves as equal, to hear that could profoundly begin to change things. But that requires something that the church seems to be lacking across the board. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's very well said, Michael. I agree with what you're saying. And I do think it's curious that we who follow Jesus have a hard time following in those particular footsteps that self-awareness is painful and that seeing that someone else is in pain doesn't necessarily cause us to change our ways. It sometimes causes us to want that person to simply stop talking so that when a woman calls us to account, it's easier to dismiss her than it is to hear her. When a victim of abuse asks for justice, it's easier to say, well, why were you victimized? You must have done something wrong. Than to acknowledge she or he was in a position of powerlessness and that they need the community to step up and help them find justice. So you touched on by this idea that you must have done something wrong. You know, the classic court argument that you were raped because you were wearing something sexually provocative, that you experienced yourself victim blaming. Um, And even by a counselor, you were told to be silent and to count the cost. So there's a correlation there between women being silent and victim blaming. But talk about how pervasive that is. I just think it's very pervasive. And I think there's a double dose of it in Christian culture because of what I was saying before about being a good girl. There's this sense about what it means to be a a good Christian woman and it's to be modest and to, to be submissive to men and to kind of know your place. And so anytime that you step out of that place or you're forced out of that place by being victimized, no matter how it happens, uh, it's easier to say, well, if you hadn't been in that place where you shouldn't have been, um, if you hadn't been wearing that, if you hadn't had that drink, then you would be safe and we wouldn't be in this ugly position of being forced to think about this. One more thought about male fragility, which I think leads to the victim blaming, is you said that it can avoid the hard work of doing justice. And I love that phrase. Tell me what you mean by the hard work of doing justice, because it's something more than just going to protest. Right. To to do justice is to, number one, to hear the cries of victims, to hear their laments. And when they say, how long, oh Lord, how long, to be willing to say, I'm going to step with you so that we can shorten that time frame. I'm going to hear you. I'm going to accompany you when you make a police report, if that's appropriate. I'm going to be with you as we go to the elders of the church and say that this person was predatory we're going to completely hear your story and hear your point of view and take that seriously and not blame you. And then we're going to take the next step is that we're going to pursue justice, which means taking, holding a predator to account. I use the word predator, but you could insert some other word. Um, Predator is maybe a more extreme word that we sometimes ignore. Christians too often want to look at these crimes as being 
sins. And of course, um, these sexual sins are, are both sins and crimes. So I think the church, in order to pursue justice, needs to learn to see both. And um, it's not enough to say, oh, this person um, slipped up. They've confessed their sin before God. They're not going to do it again. Um, instead of saying, no, this person actually committed a crime and they need to be held accountable in a court of law, whether that's a secular court, whether that's a church court, um, we need to be willing to face that reality. So all of that is a lot of work. I mean, I'm saying that a church needs to hear the cries of victims. They need to say, we are going to lament with you. We are going to respond to your lament. We are going to seek justice. We are not going to turn our backs on predators. All of that is difficult. And what's more, it means looking at the underlying culture and say, why are women so often in a way set up um, to be victimized? Um, and so um, let's really look at, at our belief system about men and women, about women and men, about the call of God on our lives, about the way the image of God is manifest in us. All of things are just a lot of hard work, aren't they, Michael? Yeah, indeed. And that's a good segue to my next question that feels like a delicate question. And as I ask this, I'm not trying to do a Mike Wallace, you know, and be adversarial. I really want to get your perspective and help men to understand. I've heard again and again with the Me Too movement, men say, well, now I don't know what I can even say to a woman. And I don't even know if I can do anything other than shake hands. And there's a part of me that understands that, um, but there's also something where women need safety and women need boundaries. So there is, on the one hand, this positive advocacy and real movement happening where women are getting a voice, victims are telling their stories, and many cases they're being heard. In fewer cases, they're getting justice. And then on the other hand, you have mostly men and some women saying that there's an overreaction and um, that, that now we've kind of cramped men's styles, if you will. So uh, just let you respond to that. I don't know if I'm asking the question well. I guess what I hear you asking is how do we face the fact that there has to be a shift in culture and that we need to think twice before we physically touch someone um, and we need to um, think twice about our language that we use for someone. Um, I, I, I don't think, from my perspective, all we're asking for is respect. And so to treat each other as you would treat someone if it was your daughter, how would you want your daughter to be treated? Um, if it was your wife, how would you want another man to treat her? Um, and if that means that sometimes I'm going to shift how I'm talking or moving in the world, well, maybe that's a long overdue shift. I guess I would have to talk about very specific things in order to understand what about that is difficult for men. And I would be very willing to do that um, just well, as I would want them to hear my, my story. Sure. Yeah. And so let's use a concrete example from the book. And again, you used real life examples, but you talked about Aretha Franklin's funeral, the eight hours of music, Ariana Grande. I think that's how you pronounce her name, got up and and did You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which I heard a recording of and it was stunning. And then she's invited up to the pulpit by the bishop uh, and he put his arm around her waist, which for me, that's just creepy to watch, but his hand was upon her breast. Mm -hmm. And social media went wild, and his response was what? His response was that he hugs all the men and women because that's what you do in God's house. Um, I'd have to I'd have to pull up the page to get the quote more exact. No, but it was it was a fragility of saying, What are you talking about? I mean, this is just something that that normally happens as opposed to, to what you said, and I appreciate your response. Let's have a new conversation about this. Let's let's see if we can begin to redefine what's okay and not okay, because you know the 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 word 
women just want to be respected, that same person would say, well, I do respect women. Uh, I'm not a racist. I'm not a misogynist. And he had also made previously a belittling comment about her name. And um, that's the kind of, you know, microaggression where that put her in her place instead of just treating her as a fabulous singer, highly, highly skilled, having put in hours and hours of practice to deliver a pitch-perfect rendition of a wonderful song about about femaleness. You make me feel like a natural woman in honor of Aretha Franklin. I mean, there's kind of all these layers about which this is a celebration of femaleness. This is a moment of really kind of, kind of lifting up uh, what it means to be a woman in the world. And his response to that, I'm sure, was not even conscious. He probably, that, which is why he could say and mean it, but I didn't do anything wrong because he couldn't even see his own behavior. He couldn't even see his own attitude. Um, did he really realize that he was uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, the women were roaring, you might say. I mean, just Aretha is is, is a fabulous woman. The whole, the whole hours and hours of, of funeral um, and, and the incredible music. Um, yeah, it was listening to a woman roar. Was he in touch with the fact that that was making him uncomfortable? So when he sees this young woman who's this fabulous singer, he doesn't see her singing talent or the hours she's putting on her career or the fact that she's soaring. No, all he sees is an attractive woman who's younger that he then has access to. There's this sense about when a man has access to a woman, what does he do with that? And he just, he didn't think twice about clamping his arm around her and letting his arm, his hand rest on her breast. It's just, did he know that he was putting her in her place? He might not have known it, but that's exactly what he was doing. And the question has to be asked if that was a man of the same age, uh, I don't know if Justin Bieber and her are the same age, but like if Justin Bieber were to get up there, would he put his arm around her, him? And would he go Bieber? You know, that's a funny name. Uh, but let's talk about your singing. Right. Exactly. And that's part of the, the power uh, is that for the most part, historically people would see that and not think that there was anything different or unusual about that but that women have experienced that uh, for millennia, and it just becomes the norm. And I want to make another racial analogy. After Mr. Floyd was killed, uh, and I, I try to be very intentional about the, the word murdered, um, I Googled some old Dean Martin roasts, and our generation would remember that. But they were these comedy specials, usually on Saturday night, where there were all of these uh, kind of Frank Sinatra rat pack people. And there were always two or three of the most popular black comedians, Sammy Davis Jr., Nipsey Russell, and Don Rickles and Dean Martin would get up and make these vicious, vicious black jokes. Uh, and, and I saw Nipsey Russell and Sammy Davis just wildly laughing, going along with these jokes and it strikes me as an analogy that certainly before the Me Too movement, there have been other feminists and women that have gained a voice, but that there's, there's just needed to be this going along with and being pleasant and kind of laughing at it. Uh, what, if, what if Ariana had taken his hand and just dropped it down and then stepped away and turned at him? Um, and looked at him, that would have been seen then as some kind of social offense and what was she doing. I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm just now getting frustrated and angry myself about that kind of double standard, even in our conversation, because your book was provocative and this conversation is going to be provocative for people as they listen. Well, and I love the way that you're getting at some of the more subtle elements of it, because I think that is what the what we're called upon to do, you know, we move away from the most gross elements of the situation and start to see how it, the ground is laid in these subtle ways. 
Can we shift to, because uh, we don't have a lot of time left, your correlation, and I thought this was also a very courageous chapter, purity culture and rape culture. And you, you make the connection. I have seen with men who struggle with uh, addiction to pornography and sexual addiction that purity culture actually has set them up for addictive sexual behavior. And you take it way beyond that to say that purity culture sets almost a perfect stage for rape culture. That's right. Purity culture. I mean, should we need to define our terms at all for, for yeah, let's, let's go ahead and do that. You know, uh, purity culture being the sense that, um, women are supposed to be sexually pure men are too, but not nearly to the degree that women are and that they're held to this, um, this standard of, of keeping themselves untouched. Um, and uh, rape culture, meaning that when a man sees a woman and feels any sexual urge, it makes sense for him then to have the ability to rape her. That both cultures see women as somehow less than men, which is why I just want to always focus on the basic that if women have the same value and worth as men in the eyes of Jesus, they ought to have the same value and worth as men in the eyes of our culture. But I do believe that purity culture and rape culture just fit together because they disregard women's agency. Um, I like to talk about agency, which is sometimes an unusual word for women in Christian culture because we haven't been taught that we can make choices and we can draw boundaries and that we can do that. It's very difficult to do. Like you mentioned, what if Ariana Grande had moved um, this fellow's arm and just given him a glare? Well, how difficult that would have been to do in the moment because it happens in a split second. But that would have been an exercise of her agency. And it's almost like we have to practice having agency. Having We have to be trained and learn how to draw a boundary and then enforce it. But we're kind of taught the opposite in Christian culture. Instead of drawing a boundary, we're supposed to accept the boundaries that are put on us by men, especially men in power. So the story I tell in this chapter about purity culture and rape culture is this horrendous story of a woman who's sexually assaulted twice. And I say that one assault is the product of rape culture and the other is the product of purity culture. And you can just see when you read her story, how these two things kind of fit together. And it's, it's a painful chapter because this is a real woman that I care about. And uh, her story, um, it's shocking, but then in hindsight, it's not shocking at all. Both of the assaults treated her as being less than a person of just of being rapeable. I mean, it's that simple of what um, is a woman rapeable. That's what rape culture means, that it makes sense for a woman to be in that position. And purity culture, by treating woman as pure and on this high pedestal, means that there's no place for her sexuality. So we need to come to a place where we can talk about the fact that we are sexual creatures in a way that isn't this black and white, either we're untainted and pure and virginal or we're, um, you know, sluts. The, the Madonna whore complex is still writ large in Christian culture. Well, and if there's no place for a young Christian woman's sexuality, there's no place for her humanity. And when there's no place for humanity, then you, you have to, fall in line with what's expected and you become powerless. That's absolutely right. You talked about David and Bathsheba in the purity culture, rape culture chapter, and you called to account, you know, what was David's or yeah, what was David's sin? And it, it wasn't just that quote, he committed adultery because he was already a, uh, a polygamist, but that he he committed what would be a criminal act today. Um, and I just had uh, a student from Denver Seminary write, uh, I'm an adjunct, send me a, a paper, a female student, um, looking at the Hebrew of David and Bathsheba, and the whole paper was on that word bathing. Uh, it wasn't that she was out sunbathing, right? Uh, and so you said that 
he gets underblamed, saying that it was adultery, which feels like, whoops, I screwed up, when it's a criminal assault, and that she is blamed for being beautiful. And what's she doing out on the roof? Right. When, if you really read the scripture, it's not, it's not that she was out on the roof, it's that David was out on the roof. And we don't know that Bathsheba was on a roof of any kind. Um, she may have been entering a mikvah for ritual purification after her period. Um, in which case, she's in the middle of a private act that is actually a religious act and uh, part of her mandate as a good uh, Jewish woman, um, you know, which puts a whole nother spin on it. Um, yeah, it's not like she was just letting it all hang out, uh, waiting for the pool boy uh, to come along and see her. This is a woman who was engaging in something mandated by um, the laws of ritual purity of the day. David sees her from his roof, his position of power. I mean, it's kind of interesting that their houses were probably in proximity because of the high position that Bathsheba's husband Uriah had as a general in David's army. Uh, So she is made vulnerable by the fact of her husband's power. Um, Just It is. It's a fascinating story, the story of David and Bathsheba. And I love the fact that it's getting a little more play. Um, I think there's so much to be learned. I actually have two chapters that deal with it because I have the next chapter then deals with the role of Nathan, uh, the prophet, as he calls David to accountability. Um, I pair a scripture story with each of these chapters in this book and um, I needed at least two chapters to begin to unpack um, this this David and Bathsheba and Nathan's story. One of the last chapters in the book uh, you call vulnerability and voice. And you said that as you engaged in this process and now that you've written the book that you have people coming to you frequently sharing their stories. What does it mean for women to get their voice back, to have a voice, and how can men co-labor toward that end? Well, thanks for that question. Uh, I think that social media currently has been a wonderful way for women to have a voice, for victims of all kinds to have voices. Um, And I think that uh, part of the power of the Me Too movement is people being shocked at how common it is for women to have these experiences. Um, that it's not like we're talking about things that are unusual or out of side of a norm. I mean, that's part of the point that these things should not be normative and they are. So to encourage women to actually give voice to their experiences for communities of faith, to uh, talk about these difficult subjects more openly, um, to really engage with a book like this and to uh, find that it will, if you have, a group of people discuss a given chapter in this book, I can guarantee you that there will be stories that will pour out in response to it. So is there then a place for that story to be heard? Can the men and women of that community hear that story and respond appropriately? As I mentioned before, there might be steps to take in terms of pursuing justice. It might be that the first step is simply for that story to be completely heard and held in a sacred space and for prayer to be poured over it. That could be such a healing moment for a woman to feel like her story was worthy of being heard, that there was silence in response instead of blaming or, um, or you know, but I have black friends, you know, the equivalent. Um, I'm one of the good guys. Um, Instead of responding in those kind of knee-jerk ways, to simply hear it in silence, to lift up a lament and say, how long, oh Lord, how long? And to then, um, to to bring it under prayer and then to seek justice. Um, These are the ways that we give voice uh, to the vulnerable to give them the time and the space uh, to share those stories. Where have you seen a healthy model for a denomination or a church handle this? You wrote 
I believe it was in the final chapter about a 2016 General Assembly uh, in the PCUSA, and that there was something that was really well done on behalf of a victim. Um, so where do you see this happening? Yes, I'm a Presbyterian, and I know that our denomination has been moving um, towards creating these task forces to create sacred, sacred space and safe space and calling to accountability um, previous actions committed in our denomin- my denomination's case, there was um, uh, acknowledgement that a denominational school that responded to uh, Chinese populations in the San Francisco area that had there had been abuse committed. Long after the fact, there was finally some acknowledgments of that and some wanting to um, make restitution. And um, so I think that any place where there's the willingness to engage in these painful moments in history and to revisit them, that's very powerful. And, you know, many churches and denominations are finally creating safer church policies to, you know, make rules that will keep children and vulnerable people safe, and then to um, create ways for victims to make their voices heard. I see individual churches doing it. I see denominations trying. I think that the larger issue is that we have to have a culture shift. We And, and culture shift begins not with a power structure. It begins at the bottom of the power. It begins with just every ordinary Christian changing their attitude and being willing to re-examine their behavior and do things differently. Well, Reverend Ruth Everhart, I want to thank you. I can only imagine that you've paid a high price to write this book personally and with people's reactions to it that push back. So thank you for your time today and for all that you continue to do in the church on behalf of justice. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. I appreciated your engagement with this topic. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.